Thank you, Jessica, for playing for us this morning. As I was uh, thinking through um, the business meeting aspect of, of today, I, what I would suggest we do and we'll be doing um, next week is, uh, again, on January 30th, we will have our, our deacon uh, vote. I do believe it would be um, advantageous for us to uh, plan for a, a combined connect group again next week. Uh, the reason being is the financial update, I think, will be much easier in that setting. Um, and so let's plan on a combined connect group on January 30th, that's next week, and then uh, going into our uh, service. And again, I'll do the vision stuff of my, my presentation next week as well. Um, so let's plan on a combined uh, connect group January 30th and then followed by our, our service. And so let's um, keep that on our calendars. Also wanted to mention uh, to deacons, especially the deacons that are currently serving, this will then um, back up our retreat, which was scheduled for this coming Saturday. Um, that will not be possible given the fact we won't know who the new deacons are as of yet. And that will then also impact um, February. And so we will be uh, looking at rescheduling the meals that we had planned throughout the month of February. So we will keep you keep you posted on um, the next few weeks of how things play out, but we will have to do some um, adjusting to the schedule, to the calendar, and so we'll get that out to you as soon as we, as soon as we have them. Well, over the last few weeks, um, in preparation for uh, Vision Sunday and looking forward uh, to this coming year, we have been talking through and looking at our purpose statement here at our church, and we have been taking a couple of phrases at a time, one phrase at a time, actually, and spending one or two weeks on each one of them. And our purpose statement here at Grace is Grace Baptist Church exists to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. That is the reason that our ministry exists, and that is why we as a church do what we do. That is our goal. That is our, that is our plan. And so a few weeks ago, we looked over two weeks at, at the idea of making disciples. What, is, what does that mean? What does that look like? We've studied that and then over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the second part of that purpose statement, which is to then mature disciples. Okay, it's not about accumulating converts. It's not about accumulating people who pray a prayer and then go live their life however uh, they want to live. That's not the picture of Christianity. That's not the picture that Jesus gave us in his ministry of taking up your cross and following him, that there was this um, consistent, obedient following of Christ, and that brings with it spiritual maturity. And so as a church, yes, we are to make disciples, but we also are to be in the process of helping disciples mature in their, in their faith. And we'll talk about that this morning um, once again. And I would invite you to find Colossians chapter 1, and uh, we are going to look through uh, a few verses this morning. And I'll give you the longer version of the sermon. I had two versions ready. It's very exciting. I had two, the short one if I got to do my presentation, and the longer one if I didn't. And so we will spend some time around this text this morning, Colossians 1. And our text is actually going to be verses 24 down through verse 29. But I want to go back and kind of get the flow of these verses and begin reading in verse number 20. And I think I just threw the sound room a little curveball. Uh, but we're going to begin reading in verse 21 and read down through uh, the end of the chapter. And I'll refer to verse 20 in a little bit. But let's look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, notice this, verse 23, if indeed... 
you continue in the faith. In other words, there is this idea of perseverance, that a believer will continue on in their faith. There will be ongoing evidence of salvation, ongoing evidence of redemption, ongoing evidence of our faith in Christ. He continues, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I of which uh, Paul became a minister. Verse 24, these will be our verses for today. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, and he powerfully works within me. This is God's word for us this morning, and let's pray together before we look at this text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the verses that are set before us today. And as we study them and and look at these verses, they may be familiar to some and possibly very likely unfamiliar to others. And I pray that as we look into this text this morning, that we will be mindful of our instruction that you have given to us today to not only learn about, but then to apply and understand what it means to us as believers, as we try as a church to make and mature disciples, that this process of maturing as a believer is part of what you've called us to do. And I pray that today would be a help to us as we, as we try to understand what you have for us as a church and as a ministry and as individual believers So bless now our service today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Michelle and I recently made a very big error in our judgment. We decided to purchase a new bed for our son. That seems like a simple thing, doesn't it? If you've ever read the book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, we're going to write the book, If You Ever Buy Your Son a Bed. Because what began as a simple purchase of a new bed led to, huh, you know what? We ought to get new carpet in his bedroom while we got everything ripped out. You know what? While we're doing that, we might as well carpet the other two bedrooms too. Well, we can't leave the hallway alone, and so we should probably rip that out. The carpet was hideous. We might as well rip that out and go ahead and and do our hallway as well. And yeah, we really need a fresh coat of paint. Well, you, and by the way, we changed out a door, had a door taken out and a brand new door put in. What started as buying a bed led to a much larger process and a much larger um, work than what we ever anticipated. And as I was working through some of this, I did the painting part, the flooring I, I do not do, and I put the bed together. I did all those things, took the other one out, which was a huge bed. If anybody's looking for a really cool punk bed, by the way, it is for sale. Um, And we put the new bed in, all that stuff. While I was working away, I started thinking about Vision Sunday. I started thinking about our ministry. 
And I started thinking about this process of tearing old carpet out and putting on new coats of paint. And I started thinking about this remodeling that we do in our homes where we find things that, quite frankly, we've, we forgot we had and we couldn't remember why we had them in the first place. And my philosophy of life is, when in doubt, throw it out. Goodbye. It's out of here. Goodbye. And when you remodel, you get this sort of clean slate, and you've got fresh, and you have all these things. Now, our ministry understands, if you're new to Grace, this may be new to you, but this auditorium didn't look like this just a few years ago. We did a major remodel, thanks to Hurricane Florence. We did a significant remodel in our ministry. So this morning, I want to talk to you about remodeling, but I am not talking about buildings. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about our ministry. You know, a number of years ago now, I was riding through Minneapolis, Minnesota with a friend. And we got into a conversation, and I asked him this question. I said, name for me one independent Baptist church that is at least 100 years old that is still thriving. We couldn't name one. Maybe you can. I've since learned of a couple that have been around for at least 100 years, that are continuing to flourish, they are continuing to thrive. And I don't know how you view ministry, but I, for one, am not content to simply rest on our past, to simply limp toward the finish line of getting to the end of my ministry and your ministry and our ministry here at Grace and just kind of coasting to the finish line. I'm not okay with that. I don't think you are either. And so as a ministry, as I began to talk and to think and to pray and to read every book I could get my hands on and had time to read about where do we need to go as a ministry? What do we need to remodel? I'm not talking about carpet. I'm talking about our hearts. I'm talking about our own individual lives. I'm talking about our own individual ministries. You know, there is, a, I think, some wrong thinking often. I get asked this, what do you do for a living? Very familiar question. We all get asked that. And of course, my answer is very simple. I am an undercover FBI agent. No, it's not true. That'd be really cool. It's just not true. I'm a pastor. And people say something like this, oh, you're in full-time vocational ministry. Yeah, I guess. I suppose you could say it that way. The reality is we make this bizarre distinction. Yes, I have the privilege of earning a salary to do what I love to do, which is preach and teach the Bible. That's why God's mercy and grace had very little, if anything, to do with me. I'm just simply trying to be faithful with what God has asked me to do with the gifts and abilities God has given to me. However, I think Paul reminds us, and you need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded, that every person in this room that is sitting here or watching online, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in full-time ministry. I don't care where you're going to go to work tomorrow. I care, but you get what I'm saying. It doesn't ultimately matter where you go to work tomorrow or whether or not you go to work at all, you and I are both together in full-time ministry. 
Yes, some of us, some of you are not in vocational ministry. In fact, if we look at the landscape of Christianity, especially in most ministries, that the percentage of people in vocational ministry is relatively small. Because of our Christian school, our percentage would probably be higher people, a number of people that would be in vocational ministry. That's true. But the idea is when you look at Christianity across the board, the level of people in vocational ministry percentage-wise pales in comparison with the millions of believers that are in full-time ministry. What are you doing with your ministry? What are you doing? What are you investing? How are you involved? What are you doing with the ministry that God has given to you? Faithful ministry is required of everyone, everyone who claim Jesus Christ as Savior. During the dark ages, the church began to believe that only the elite people should be able to read the Bible and know the Bible. Only the elites had super secret access to Scripture and to truth, and they became the guardians of that truth, and they were then sharing it often very in, a, in a very distorted way with the masses. My friend, that is not scriptural in any way, shape, or form. And so this morning, I want us to look at this text, and I want, to, I want to challenge all of us, myself included, that we are all called to two undertakings as faithful Christians. And the Apostle Paul gives them to us in these verses, and he talks to us about what we as faithful Christians can expect in ministry. Number one, you can expect to suffer for the sake of the body. Now, as Americans, we have taken the word suffer, and we have actually inserted the word inconvenienced. If I am inconvenienced for the ministry, therefore that equals suffering. The Apostle Paul, and I would argue the apostles in general, would laugh at you. When we talk about suffering and how we suffer as a nation or we suffer as Christians living in this, in this nation, we don't understand suffering. Now, I'm like you, I think. I pray that we never experience the kind of suffering that the apostles went through and what they experienced for the ministry. But we understand, you understand, as a believer, the suffering that the Apostle Paul went through. And that is why verse 24 is so profound when Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now he's not talking about sort of this bizarre self-inflicted suffering that the Roman Catholic Church and others began to believe that you had to cause bodily harm to yourself in order to be spiritual. That's not what he's talking about. But he understood that suffering was going to be a part of the Christian experience. And rather than moan about it, mope about it, have a pity party about it, blame God for it, or question God's goodness and God's mercy and sovereignty, Paul says, you know what? I rejoice in my suffering. There was this sense that Paul certainly did not believe it was fun. He certainly did not believe that it was something that was physically something that was pleasing, but he understood that there was reason for him as an apostle to rejoice even in the midst of his suffering. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find that to be a curious statement. And I would want to know, Paul, what is it that led you to the place that you could rejoice even in this suffering? Well, notice what he says. He rejoiced in his suffering. Why? Well, first of all, because it was for your sake. Paul understood this this mindset of Christianity being the fact that he was called to suffer for the spiritual benefit of someone else. And again, Paul took this so seriously that he understood that the importance of his suffering was far bigger than it was for himself. I said this last week, I believe, but it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, he never talks about who he was. He always talks about what he was. He was a servant. Well, you know, in ministry sometimes, I just feel like I'm taken advantage of. I feel like I'm a, a, you're a what? A servant? Well, I feel like I'm overworked and I'm overtasked and everything's a little too hard. Uh, You're a servant. And we have to understand that as a servant of Christ, it means that I take my agenda, my ideas, my philosophy, and whatever my expectations are, and I throw them away because my expectations have to be about serving Christ as a servant of Christ. And even when I suffer, I rejoice. Now, maybe Paul doesn't quite answer that question for you. Okay, Paul, I get it. I'm supposed to self-sacrifice for the spiritual benefit of other people. I get that. But Paul, there's got to be more to it. There is. He makes a very, very interesting statement in this text. He says, I I am suffering in my flesh for your sake. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. That is the church. Whoa, wait a minute. Does Does that statement not raise a very profound question in your mind? It should. What is Paul talking about when he says that I am filling up something that is lacking in what Christ did for us? What is he saying? Well, let's begin by stating the obvious of what he is not saying. He is not talking about the fact that he had to suffer in a redemptive sense. He didn't die for you. Paul's suffering did not achieve the ability for you to experience the atonement through the apostle Paul's suffering. If you don't believe that, you can go back to verse 20, and Paul said, and through him, Christ, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The sacrifice of Christ in a redemptive sense, in a salvation sense, in an atonement sense, was perfect. He was the all-sufficient Lamb of God, who was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary for your sake and mine. Paul is not saying that he had to suffer in order to earn his salvation, and he didn't have to suffer to earn your salvation. That is not what he's saying. Well, then, what does he say? Well, this term, to fill up, is an interesting phrase. Actually, it's one of those words that it only happens here in the New Testament. One time, it's the only place. And it were, it, the word carries the meaning or the idea of to complete something for someone else. Now, he is not saying he's completing salvation for Christ. We 
understand based on even the verses around this verse. That cannot be what he's saying. It means also to fill in substance or context. It means completing in place of. Okay, Jay, that's great. But what is he talking about? Think about how the world treated Christ. They hated him. They rejected him. They hung him on the cross. And because mankind could no longer persecute Christ directly, they turned their attention to the body of Christ, the church, the Apostle Paul. Jesus said it this way in John 15, 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me way before it ever hated you. And so Paul is not suffering again in salvation sense. He's not suffering to earn salvation for you or for anybody else. But through the suffering of Paul, Paul is arguing that the gospel was able to move forward. Not only was the gospel proclaimed in places like Colossae, in places like Philippi, in places like Rome. I mean, you think about how many letters Paul wrote sitting in a prison cell. Paul's suffering was filling up what Christ was lacking in the sense there will be suffering and the attack on Christ and his truth until he returns. And Paul says, I get to be a part of that. I get to be a part of the suffering for Christ for your sake and also for the name of Christ. This reference is suffering that will take, the reference to suffering that will take place leading up to the return of Christ. Paul says he would gladly endure the suffering for the benefit of the church. He was willing to take on even more suffering if it meant that others didn't have to suffer likewise. He would also suffer more so that the gospel would reach more people. The gospel wasn't over. It wasn't finished. It had to be proclaimed. The work of Christ was finished. But the presentation of the gospel had to continue to move forward. Now, if you know anything about this man named Paul, Paul is the apostle that wrote the book of Colossians. He is known earlier in Scripture in the book of Acts by the name of Saul. He was known as a persecutor of the church. He was a man that killed Christians. He put people to death in the book of Acts. They were known as the way. The people that were a part of the way that became Christians. Paul was part of the, the process, part of the regime that was killing Christians. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, when the Apostle Paul is actually confronted by Christ, it says this, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice of God, of Christ, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, if you know where we are in the book of Acts, Jesus at this point had already ascended back to his father. But what was Paul doing? He was in the process of persecuting believers. He was in the process of persecuting the church. And that is why Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Now it got really bizarre for the believers at that time. This man saw that God is going to change his name to Paul. He's now brought into the body of Christ. 
And there were those that were tasked with training him and discipling him. Now, there's a worthy calling for you. Go take this man who has been putting your friends and loved ones to death. Take him under your wing and teach him and train him and disciple him toward maturity in Christ. Well, and few verses later, Acts 9, verses 13 to 16, Ananias says this. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. By the way, let me comment on the word saints. Happens here. It also happens in our text of Colossians. Saints simply means believer. Saints is not the Roman Catholic idea of certain people achieving a certain status after they are dead to be named saints, okay? You, if you are a believer in Christ, you are a saint. That is who this is talking about. It's not talking about a select, elect group of people. It is talking about all of the elect, all of the Christians, all of the believers, okay? Not a certain segment of them. It says, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, Ananias said. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now listen to this. Listen to verse 16. God says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. From the very beginning of Paul's ministry, he was destined to suffer. You know, it's still chilly in here this morning. It's cold, inconvenienced, suffering for the cause of Christ. Paul says, I'll suffer all the more if it means more people here. I will suffer more for the church if, in fact, it leads them to the place that they increasingly become more like Christ. Paul says, I can rejoice. Not because my suffering is fun, but because of the joy that was coming from his suffering and from what the Apostle Paul was doing with the ministry. He goes on to verse 25, and he talks about now the body of, 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 of the church, that is the church, and in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Not for him. Not so that he became the popular writer. Not so he became the keynote speaker at every conference that was on the conference schedule around Colossae. No, 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 no. He says, I was named and given to me to make the word fully known for you, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. There's that word again, saints. God called Paul uniquely in order to reveal what was previously called here a mystery. Although Paul was divinely called to the position of apostle, he saw himself, as we've mentioned before, simply as a servant. By the way, if you're reading from the King James translation, you see the word dispensation. It's the word management, the administration. Here we see it as Paul was made a steward of Scripture. He was given the responsibility to be a steward, to be responsible for the Scriptures. And Paul was to make the Scriptures his priority. Now, he talks about this word mystery. Well, what does that mean? That sounds kind of weird. 
Well, the biggest mystery in the time of the New Testament was simply this, is that Jews and Gentiles would somehow be mended together into one body called the church. That was foreign. That was a, that was a mystery. Apart from God revealing that through the apostles and through Paul in particular, that the Jews and Gentiles would come together and they would become one body under Christ. That was, that was unknown to the Old Testament saint. They didn't understand that this was a mystery. And yet Paul was revealing this to him. So before we leave this idea of, of suffering, I want to make just four quick lessons for us to observe on Paul's opening verses here on his suffering. Number one, Paul's suffering drew him closer to Christ and they drew him closer to the church. Paul did not enjoy suffering and difficulties any more than you. And we can rejoice also if we keep the ultimate goal of ministry in mind. Suffering is not enjoyable. Nonetheless, we can have joy in our suffering when we trust that our sovereign God has a plan for our suffering. There is something about, there is something unique about times of trial in our lives, especially when people go through a, a common trial. It, it blends their hearts together. It drew Paul closer to Christ. We've said this before, that sometimes when you're at the bottom of the barrel, that's the best place in the world you could be. We don't sign up for it. You're crazy if you do. But when everything else is lost and there is nothing else for you to grasp and nothing else for you to hope in, that is the moment in which we draw closer and closer to Christ. Or you can resent Christ. You can question him. You can throw a pity party. Paul didn't have time for any of those things. He said, I will rejoice in my suffering because I'm drawing closer to Christ and he's drawing closer to these churches. Number two, I want to point this out again to make sure there's no confusion. Paul's suffering was not required for his salvation. Religion may tell you to do more. It may compel you to pedal faster and to suffer more to earn your salvation. But in Christ, you have experienced redemption through the cross of Calvary. Religion can't do that for you. Self-inflicted pain cannot do that to you. Denial of the blessings of life cannot do that for you. Only Christ can do that. Number three, Paul's suffering and past transgressions did not define him. He was not defined by his past sins that he had committed against the church, nor was he defined by the fact that he was suffering. And then number four, Paul's suffering helped reveal God's mystery to the world around him and understanding that Paul's main ministry, as he says, even in this text, he says that he came to fill up with Christ was lacking, to minister as a steward that God has given to him to do what? To make the word of God fully known. That was his job. It wasn't to entertain, it wasn't to impress. It was to preach the scripture. And we've mentioned this before, and this goes along with the slide presentation I'll present, Lord willing, next week. But felt needs preaching that's based on what people think they want is nothing more than coated cotton candy. It's kind of like going to Baskin Robbins and picking your favorite flavor. It's not preaching the Word of God. 
One writer said it this way. David Harrell wrote this. He said, and I'm quoting, the primary reason the church makes so little difference in the world today is because too many pulpits are filled with entrepreneurs, entertainers, therapists, and political activists rather than stewards of the mysteries of God. Amen. I join that amen. Absolutely. I'm not an entertainer. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a therapist. I'm definitely not a political activist. But what I am is a person given the responsibility to consistently, lovingly, unapologetically stand behind this pulpit and declare to you the unchanging, undeniable, infallible, absolutely sufficient word of God. We're going to keep doing that. So, in our suffering and sacrifice for the body of Christ, we have to embrace a second undertaking. This isn't about suffering to be miserable together. It's not, that's not the point. But we secondly have to proclaim Christ to everyone. Notice what he says. Let me reread verses 28 and 29 for you. Him, Christ, we proclaim Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with 2.3% of my energy. Just want to see if you're listening. With all of my energy, with all of his energy that powerfully works in me. This was empowered by God himself. That all power of God was resting in him. And Paul says, I am struggling, I am toiling, I am working. For what? To proclaim Christ to everyone. Paul was consumed with this central message of Christ. He was committed to proclaiming the gospel. Notice in this proclamation of the gospel, he explained it. He, he admonished people. He instructed people. He warned people. This correcting believers in their minds and their actions when they were out of order, it was rooted in wisdom. It was not rooted in their personal preference. It was warning against potential error. It was warning against the consequences of sinful decisions. This was directed not only to the unredeemed, but to the redeemed. Paul also said he was committed to teaching, not just admonishing, not just correcting, but the orderly, intensive presentation of biblical truths on how people can grow and change. By the way, he wasn't promoting scolding. He wasn't promoting threatening people. And he wasn't promoting my personal fear of manipulating people. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about challenging people, instructing them so that they may be perfect, mature in Christ. It's curious to me. Notice what word Paul uses again and again. Him we proclaim warning who? Everyone. And teaching who? Everyone. With all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, 
I'm not denying that he could be talking about unbelievers to some degree, but in the context, I think he's primarily talking about teaching and instructing every single believer so that they would become mature in Christ. For what purpose? That we present everyone to Christ mature at his coming. Mature and ready. Not babes, not infants, not selfish people, not disobedient people, but people who are growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Christ. Now notice verse 29. Notice the agony, literally, the word agony is in this verse. I toil, struggling, striving. The word comes from the Greek word where we get our English word agony. Paul says, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep struggling. I'm going to keep fighting. I'll keep suffering. I'll keep experiencing agony in my life. Why? For you. So that I can teach you so that you can become more mature. So that when our Lord comes back, Paul says we can be able, we will be able to present everyone mature in Christ. Some will undergo formal training, Bible training, that's true. But all believers regardless of the level of formal training that you have, are to be learning Scripture, and not only that, that you are to be helping others along the road. I was challenged in my reading recently, and I've known this, and I forget this, that not everybody likes to read all the time. Not everybody likes to read Jonathan Edwards all the time, who I've been reading a lot lately. Or Jeremiah Burroughs. But you know what? My job as the shepherd of this flock is to read everything I can get my hands on to teach you. So that you can take what you learn and teach somebody else. You may never go to seminary. Most of you won't. But you all have the responsibility of teaching. You know why? Because you're in full-time ministry too. This instruction was not for the purpose of increasing empty head knowledge. It was for the purpose of increasing the believer's level of obedience. I'm going to challenge you with a thought that I came across and been thinking much about. Is that sometimes in our lives when it seems I've hit a spiritual wall... And maybe you've come at the place in your spiritual walk with Christ that you feel kind of dull, you feel kind of dead inside. You hear people say this, believers say this all the time. I just need to pray more. Okay, we all need to pray more. Pray without ceasing. I like what Tozer said. He said, churches that have classes on prayer, he said, that's ridiculous. That's like teaching somebody how to love. Prayer should be what Christians do. In so many words, Tozer said. Yes, prayer is absolutely important. I am not denying that. I'm not discarding that. But you know what? Sometimes our excuse that we need to pray more is because we don't obey more. 
Sometimes, yes, we all need to pray more. But we also need to obey more. It's not about prayer and you're going to be magically zapped from heaven to change the direction of your life. It requires obedience. So when Paul says, I'm instructing you, it's not just for head knowledge. It's just not so you pray more. That's important. But so that you would grow and obey and become mature and become more like Christ so that when he returns, he will get all of the glory for what God has done in your life. I remember in the seventh grade, long, long, long time ago, I decided I wanted to wrestle. Actually, the wrestling coach hunted me down. I hated it. I hated every part of it. And I remember standing, not standing, sweating my guts out on this smelly, nasty mat the day before Thanksgiving of my seventh grade year. And I was working hard, even though I hated it. I was working hard because I wanted to learn how to throw people on the ground and pin them. That's what I wanted to do. But the work was difficult. And I remember the coach, to this day, I can still hear him yelling, tomorrow you'll be eating turkey. But for now, work, 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 work. He was screaming into the top of his lungs. I still remember it. I quit wrestling. You know why? I hated it, number one. I wanted pads and helmets and, like, destroy people on grass, not on a mat. But you know the real reason I quit? It was hard. It was hard. I remember going to my wrestling coach, handing him my little weird ear thingy, and said, I quit. I regret that to this day. I was never going to be a wrestler because I hated it, but I shouldn't have not let my team down because I quit. Have you quit? Oh, you may be going through the motions. You may be here. You're here today. Praise the Lord. That's good. But have you quit struggling? Have you quit fighting? Have you quit investing your time and energy into the gospel ministry that God has given to you? I'm not in vocational ministry. That is not what I said. To the ministry, whatever ministry it is that God has given to you. Answer this in your own heart. What percentage of effort are you giving right now? I think Paul would say it's 100% or nothing. We all have limited amount of time. We all have limited talent. We all have limited energy. But as a church, we'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing. As a church, we want to invest in the areas of ministry where we can have the greatest impact. That means no ministry is safe from being remodeled. No ministry is secure from being eliminated if needed to be. Church researchers tell us that today, most people will give a church two time slots a week. That's it, two. 
Think about our model. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, typically four. They're going to give you two. And that's the committed ones, by the way. That's fine, but where are we as a church going to invest our energy to work, to labor? You see, being fruitful to the ministry is going to require some suffering. It's going to require some hard work on your part and mine. But you know what? If we do that, we get to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Everyone God brings to us, we get to proclaim his truth for his glory so that when Christ returns, they and you and me can be mature. More and more like Christ. So, are you striving for the gospel? Are you proclaiming God's truth to everyone? According to this text, this is what every faithful believer should be undertaking every single day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text and for our time together around your word today. God, I I pray that as we read through these verses and think about what they mean, that we wouldn't become complacent or lazy or just rest on past successes, whatever that means. But rather, we would be pressing forward. There is a world outside of these doors that needs to hear the gospel. And there are people that we know individually and collectively that we need to share the gospel with. And there's others that we need to help mature and to train and to teach. And God, my prayer for our ministry is that we would continue to press forward, striving forward, never quitting. Maybe weary at times, but never quitting. And God, may this be a help to all of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor West is going to come and lead us in a closing song this morning. Uh, It seems that we have lost our screens, uh, but we're going to sing the chorus of a song that I think uh, we know well enough, a lot of us know well enough to sing uh, from memory. But before we sing that chorus, while Pastor was preaching, I was pulling up the lyrics of this song because I can't think of a a better song uh, to close this message with today. So Uh, I'm going to read one of the verses to you, and then we're going to sing the chorus. Why don't you go ahead and stand? The verse says, Oh, to know the power of your risen life, and to know you in your sufferings, to become like you in your death, my Lord, so with you to live and never die. Let's sing that chorus together. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're my rest, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord, love you. Amen. Have a great week. You are dismissed.